Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Master Word. Today hosting is myself, Aretha. I'm an economics graduate with um, and currently working in the world of finance. And with me is Omaya. Hi everyone, my name is Omaya. I'm very happy to be on yet another episode of Master Word. I am a medical student by background and I'm currently integrating in management. I'm part of the Ma podcast team and I've also been a fundraising officer and I went on the Journey Ma trip in 2018. Awesome. So today we've got an incredible guest with us today, specialising in maternal health and global health, in particular in maternal health. We've got with us Dr. Anita Makins. Dr. Anita Makins is an honorary faculty member of the London School of Hygiene and Diploma in Tropical Medicine and is a founding member of Oxford University's Global Surgery Group. She has been an active member of FIGO's Committee on Women's Health and Human Rights. Dr. Anita has experience, extensive experience in sub-Saharan Africa and is currently the director of the PPIUD with initiative at FIGO, which is the International Federation of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. A multi-million dollar project running for six years across six countries in Africa and Southeast Asia. Thank you so much for um, joining us today from your busy schedule. Um, We really, really appreciate you being on our platform to share your experience um, and your work within the global health arena, but also within maternal health in particular. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. And um, we're really happy to have you on, on board. Great, but no, thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, I'm, I'm honoured. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, we just want to hear lots about you already. We've been, we've been in, in the background, um, we've heard a lot about your, your experience already and we've got so much more to ask you and, and yeah, it's, it's just been incredible. So please, um, for the, for the uh, benefit of our audience as well, so that they get to know you a little bit better, just like myself and Amaya, um, tell us about yourself and your journey into the work that you've been doing um, with, within this, this space. So you obviously started with medicine and then how did you get to where you are today? Um, so, so yeah, so I'm um, a sort of mixed background. I was born and brought up in Brazil, have an English mum and a Brazilian dad. And um, I kind of saw a lot of poverty and issues. And I always had an interest in, 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 in health and medicine. So even at school growing up, I kind of tried to, get involved with anything I could in terms of voluntary um, work that involved health and, and I think those impressions really stuck you know stuck with me as I as I grew older and so it affected my choice to do medicine and then I came to the UK and trained as a doctor um, here actually in Nottingham University and then, and then did my elective period in, um, in the Cameroon in West Africa um and um that was i mean i'd seen a lot of poverty in brazil but actually actually i was really taken aback by by what i lived through and saw in in the cameroon so that kind of spurred me on to want to get more involved in um health in 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 low middle income countries and it's difficult actually as a as a trainee or a trainee doctor I'm in the UK because obviously you you need to go through your training and so the opportunities to to do stuff abroad are a little bit more complicated. So my next opportunity really was as a registrar, I took an out-of-program experience. Um, I requested an out-of-program experience for a year and I worked with Médecins Sans Frontières in um, Sierra Leone. Um, And that was, you know, a a really incredible experience. Um, And kind of, although you're providing 
a huge amount of emergency care to people who otherwise wouldn't receive any care. And in that sense, it's very rewarding. It's also very stressful, very tiring, but, but, but you know, overwhelmingly a, a very positive experience. Um, but I kind of felt like I didn't really understand how the whole how systems worked and, and where they'd failed, you know, why people were in such a desperate state in terms of their health. And so um, that pushed me towards wanting to do a master's in public health. So um, I went to the London School of Hygiene and did a master's in public health in developing countries. Um, and um, and after that, decided that I wanted to go abroad again. So I gave up my job um, in Oxford and went to work for a Swiss NGO um, who had worked for many years, actually, since the 1930s in northern Mozambique, um, in the uh, part of the world called Cabo Delgado. And I, when, when I lived there with my husband and my two kids for five years, I'm running a maternal health project in the north. And again, that was really, you know, a, a very positive experience. Just, um, you know, we managed to do a lot. And the project's actually still going since I left. I came back because I was pregnant with our third child. Um, and anyway, so back in the UK, and I have a part-time NHS job um, in Oxford. And um, and then part time I work for, been working for FIGO, the International Federation of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So that's kind of my my journey to where I am now. Amazing! Thank you for sharing. Um, that sounds incredible. Can I ask a little bit about um, the trigger point? Was it was it always um, like was medicine always the goal? Was it something that you saw in Brazil or something that happened that you kind of thought, oh, you know what, I want to go and pursue a career within the health um, care world or was it something that you kind of just grew to love and kind of found essentially as you as you grew up yeah I think um so I had a grandmother who had had led a very exciting life so she she was Swiss and she and she was a nurse and she was a Swiss nurse who who took herself off to various parts of the world one of which was Mozambique and um she worked there just before the second world war broke out before she moved over to, to Brazil and um, she always had really exciting stories to you know talked about her time in Africa and we had lots of kind of uh, furniture and stuff at home you know that she had brought over from Mozambique and I think kind of growing up you know, I was always very curious about all of that and I was definitely very kind of you know interested in biology and how the body worked and so on and so it just made sense for me to to go and and, and do medicine I had some I went to an uh, international school and we did instead of a levels we did the international baccalaureate um, and that part of that is is um spending time in what's called service and so i worked in a um uh, an orphanage for hiv positive children this was in the 80s and so it was you know hiv was still new and scary and and anyway and then so working with those children to me really cemented the sort of idea that i wanted to do medicine and and um yeah so probably probably that I'd say but I've never uh, yeah I've never looked back it's all definitely what you kind of know in your heart if you want to be a medic or a doctor mm -hmm. yeah and um I just had a question leading on from all of that so I mentioned at the start that I'm a medical student in my fourth year of study mm -hmm. and um so obviously I've still got a whole world of possibility ahead of me in terms of there's there's a lot of trendy stuff emerging that I'm quite interested in you know things like digital health and then also um, how, how digital health can kind of link in to the global sphere. So um, I don't know, I guess my question is just kind of um, 
from for what what advice would you give to someone at my point right at the start of the medical career how can i find what i'm passionate in and how can i actually amplify the difference that i can make worldwide um i think um you know the world's a very different place now to when i started my training and i think in a way obviously covid's put a little bit of a spanner in the work but um i think kind of you know going out and experiencing you know as much as as you can in terms of different experiences whether it's specialty wise or context wise um because i think the more you spend time in different contexts the sort of better understanding you have or sort of you're more able to then make decisions about what you what interests you in particular but also the effect that you have on or that you can have on other people and, and and how you go about doing it and i mean the whole you know it revolution and as you say digital technology and and health is is super interesting and i'm sure it will it will um be even more impo- more important as time goes on i can't particularly advise you in that because that's not my field of expertise but there's no doubt that um you know that you, your generation needs to take this and and use it um to to the benefit of of humanity but low and middle income countries particularly you know it's a, it's very um it's relatively sort of implementable and cheap i would say because you know internet is available all over the world and people have phones everywhere and so this didn't exist and so it's it's yeah it's got huge potential mm-hmm. yeah i think um that kind of reminds me of a project that ma is currently working on which is called one ma um and it's basically just to do with um creating a hub spoke model for um for for clinics around silet and around bangladesh and the way that it uh, the, the way that it's kind of conceptualized to work is that um all of the data will be stored on um on a cloud based network where uh, the data can basically be accessed by clinicians all the way across bangladesh with the aim of like um with the aim of prioritizing the most in need patients and escalating their care to somewhere more central. So yeah, definitely I think it's got a lot of applications especially in the global health world and what you said really resonated with me in terms of it being um cheap and freely available. Uh I feel like that's not really something that's spoken about. I think we get so caught up on like digitizing the NHS, you know, digitize 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 that we um potentially forget all of the applications that exist elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that is a really really exciting um opportunity. Mhm. Definitely. Amazing. Um going back to your experiences, um tell us a little bit about your experiences abroad. So you've mentioned um working overseas especially within the developing countries. What sort of projects have you been involved with? Um so the most recent one is the with um Bigo International Federation of Obstetricians and Gynecologists It's actually just uh, finished at the end of December now December 2020 and that was a big um project uh we had we were quite well funded by anonymous donors um and the project was looking at um trying to solve the issue of the unmet need for contraception so so there's a there's a huge unmet need globally for contraception and particularly this happens particularly in the postpartum period um, and there's quite a lot of evidence to show that birth spacing um is is a healthy thing to do um so waiting 2 years between having one child and another child means that mothers are less likely to die that their children actually are less likely to die they're less likely to 
um, going to premature labour when they're pregnant, less likely to miscarry. So there's all kinds of health benefits related to that. So this project was looking at um, trying to, and, and we don't generally um, talk about contraception when women are pregnant. It's something that usually in the old days we used to say, oh, you know, you go and see your doctor six weeks after you've given birth, and that's when you start talking about it. But there's a lot of evidence out there that, you know, once women have had their baby, they don't particularly... Uh, sort of prioritise contraception and so um, having sort of unplanned pregnancies soon after birth is quite a common event um, and in low middle income countries you know going to hospital to give birth um, is quite a big ordeal and people often live far away and can't afford transport to get to hospital and so the point and so they, they don't come back at six weeks to start talking about family planning either because they can't afford it or it's too far or you know the babies are very young and and, and so they don't you know don't don't can't basically come to hospital with a baby so bringing contraception into the delivery time is 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 really a, an efficient way of doing it and and then you know it gives women the ability to have more than just sort of maximize their their hospital experience for birth so what we did with our project was um, try to get uh, practitioners, healthcare providers to counsel ladies about contraception in the antenatal period. So when they come for their antenatal clinic, so they can talk about the different kinds of methods that are available to them. Um, and then the one method which is available pretty much on a global level and is also very cost effective is the IUD. So this is the intrauterine copper device. Um, it's a little coil that sits inside the womb with, and it's got some copper in it and, and, and um, is very effective at preventing pregnancies. Um, and it can stay in the uterus for up to even to 10 to 12 years if women want it, but it can also be taken out quite easily as well. So we are also teaching practitioners to uh, how to put the, the, the what's called the PPIUD, postpartum IUD, um, into a lady's uterus if she chose that method. So the idea was to teach people how to counsel properly on contraception, tell them about the different options. And then if the lady chose PPIUD, we were also teaching them how to actually insert the IUD. And um, we did this across six countries in 48 hospitals. Um, and one of the countries was indeed Bangladesh, which I know Ma is particularly, uh, has uh, you do a lot of work there. Um, and particularly in Silet, which I know uh, you also work in. Um, so, so I was lucky enough to, to go to Bangladesh quite a few times, um, lovely country, went to Silet as well, just um, such friendly people. I was so warmly welcomed every single time. We worked very much with uh, OGSB, which is the Obzangani Society of Bangladesh, um, with some very inspirational uh, ladies who have kept actually the project going since, since it just finished in December. Um, so we did quite a lot, quite a lot of work there. Wow, there's so much you've just mentioned. I mean, it sounds like a, a massive, massive project with 48 hospitals visiting, like all of that, keeping that going. I think it sounds, yeah, it sounds really amazing. Um, one thing that I did pick up on that you mentioned was that um, going to hospitals is such an ordeal for the for the mothers during their time of labour, um, and that's something that uh, I witnessed as well, which was that when we when we had the health camps in 2018, they've been running yearly. But when I attended in 2018, something that was very common between the mothers was that when we were talking to them, they were saying, oh, did you know you're the first doctor I've met? And then I would say, no, no, I'm not a doctor. I'm a, I'm a medical student. But then they'd still be like, no, no, but you're the first medical person that I've met because I didn't know that I was meant to have these regular checkups. And um, I think it was it was just something common from every single mother that um, they hadn't been attending hospital because there was this culture of, 
you only need hospital when something's going wrong. So is this something that you've witnessed in all of the different locations that you've been in, this kind of stigmatization of hospitals? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know actually the most recent figures on Bangladesh institutional birth rates of the number of women that go to give birth in, in hospital, but it, it is low compared to many other low income countries. Um, I think it's less than 50%. Um, and I think actually during COVID that went down by quite a lot as well. Um, I think it went down to about 30%, but I'm quoting these figures off the top of my head. But it, um, Yes, I think traditionally in Bangladesh, women, women wouldn't necessarily go to a hospital unless there was a complication, um, particularly in rural areas. Um, and so kind of giving birth in a hospital is a sort of golden opportunity to offer all kinds of things. And um, one, one project that we haven't quite finished yet, um, but we'll hopefully be publishing a paper soon, is looking at anemia in Bangladeshi women. Um, because having multiple pregnancy, you know, pregnancies one after the other with very short um, interpregnancy spaces is, is spacing is, is quite common. And so that takes its toll on the lady's um, uh, haemoglobin. So the, the baby helps itself to iron stores. And if the mother doesn't have a good diet and doesn't have time to replenish stores in between pregnancies, then anemia was extremely common, actually, in Bangladesh. And then we were a little bit worried about the coil maybe worsening anemia. So we did a study looking at women um, who had the coil and women who didn't have the coil to check that we weren't actually making that situation worse, which which we weren't, which was great. Um, and I haven't quite published that yet. But yeah, I think institutional, you know, giving birth in hospital with a, or, or at least giving birth with a skilled birth attendant, which for many low middle income countries does mean going to hospital um, is, is what's recommended by, by the WHO. Um, and yeah, particularly the same for Bangladesh. That's really interesting. Um, so you've mentioned the anemia um, being, uh, you know, one of the major health issues or one of the um, possible um, issues and the complications that may come arise from it with regards to the coil and the contraception. Have you found something similar or have you, you know, is that something across the board in terms of um, in, in the global space within sub-Saharan Africa as well, especially with regards to women and women's health? Um, yeah, so I mean, the coil, the, there is the, the sort of studies that are in the literature are not conclusive about the coil making um, anemia worse. Um, and so there's always been this question around it. So some ladies complain that it would increase their periods or make their periods heavier. And so then the implication of that is that that renders them anemic. But that was the reason for doing the study. Um, and we did it, we chose Bangladesh because Bangladesh had such high baseline rates of anemia. So we were going to do it in Tanzania, but actually Bangladesh had lower hemoglobin levels. And we only really had the funding and the time to do it in one country. So we ended up actually going for Bangladesh because anemia was so prevalent. Um, and then that is something that's been documented before. And you've you've spoken about the preventive, um, the kind of contracept, you know, contraception projects. Um, but I've also seen from like researching um from your research you've also done some um some research into family planning and in postpartum family planning in the UK um could you shed some light upon that as well yeah so interestingly we kind of we did all this um this work in in these six countries but actually England also has issues with um 
with contraception and making contraception available. And certainly it isn't the norm to offer contraception to ladies who are in their immediate postpartum period. Neither is it normal for to talk to women about contraception in the antenatal period. And we're trying to change that actually in Oxford. And um, we, particularly with the pandemic, kind of spurred us on to get on with a project that we've been talking about for a long time. But um, because during the pandemic, um, sexual health clinics closed and um, GP surgeries were trying to minimise seeing people and people didn't want to come to hospital, obviously, unnecessarily with the fear of catching COVID. And so um, we felt that given that women would still come to us to give birth, that we should be offering them contraception as well after birth. So we um, set up an initiative in, in Oxford. Um, we've got a postpartum family planning working group and we we um working with some registrars and um, the midwives um, to, to basically get um, contraception offered to, to ladies before they leave hospital. So before they leave hospital now in Oxford, they can they can um, they can have the mini pill or depot injection um, or a coil as well and, and shortly implants as well. And um, I'm interested to know, we've been speaking a little bit about Bangladesh so far. Um, I was just wondering whether you could tell us a little bit more about projects that you've done in other countries. Um, I know that uh, you have, you've done a lot of work in sub-Saharan Africa as well. So maybe if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So um, so in Mozambique, um, I was working. Uh, so we had a, again, I, I started off the project. So we were quite quite sort of free to 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 work in whatever sort of area we felt was was most important which is difficult because there were so many things that we could do but um so we worked in collaboration with the ministry of health um in this northern rural area of the country um and uh it was a, a project uh looking at maternal and neonatal health um, and so one of the issues you talked, we talked a little bit before about institutional birth rates and ladies actually coming to hospital to give birth or going to health uh, clinic to give birth. And in, in um, Cabo Delgado, that was quite unusual. So less than 50 percent of ladies would actually come to hospital to give birth. Um, and, you know, there wasn't also a lot of statistics in terms of what maternal mortality rates were. But when I did see ladies in, in the clinics and in hospital, it was clear to me that maternal mortality ratios must have been very, very high because most women would know, you know, knew of somebody dying in labour or could tell stories about relatives who had died in labour or sometimes babies would come in and, you know, and their mother would have died. But they, nobody, there wasn't really any recognition of it. So there's no proper data collection system working anyway or re registration of births and deaths and so on. So we did a, a study looking at um it was like a cap study and um knowledge attitude and practice study and um, where we interviewed i think it was about 730 men and women so women who had given birth in the last two years plus and then their 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 other halves asking them you know how their pregnancy had gone what had happened where they'd given birth why they would decided to give birth where they gave birth um, and if they tried to go to hospital had they managed to get there? How had they gone about it? Um, was there delay in receiving care? All of, all of this kind of stuff. And and, um, and it was hugely interesting because what it showed was that um, there was a slightly different um, kind of belief 
about what happened in hospital and, and, and why you should go to hospital and also with regards to the pregnancy at hell itself and, and how it developed. But it basically transpired that um, a lot of women weren't going to hospital because there was a general belief amongst women rather than men um, that if there was a delay in labour, that it was the lady's fault that, 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 that there was this delay in labour and that it might have meant that she had extramarital affairs or something. And so going to hospital wasn't really a way of curing that or sorting that out. So it wasn't this understanding that, you know, that we could do something about obstructed labour or even stop babies dying in labour. Um, it was a really big study. There was lots of other things that came out of it. But what, what it made us do was work much more in the community with the traditional birth attendants. Um, and to have sort of, we used to have something called the Tejaswa Berto, which means an open terrace. And the idea was that everybody would come and we'd, we'd, in the villages we would do work sort of trying to debate these kind of beliefs and try and understand them better and talk about things and, 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 and you know, and how a baby forms in utero and, and why you get into, why you sometimes get stuck in labour and, you know, what health centres or hospitals could maybe do about it. Um, and that that was that was really interesting and really beneficial. And it kind of brought the traditional birth attendants to sort of working more directly with the hospitals and the health centres. So the nurses that worked in the health centres, we kind of encouraged them to collaborate more with their traditional birth attendants so that when they knew there were pregnant ladies in the village, that they would bring them to the health centre rather than it being, you know, sort of suspicious kind of relationship. Um, we also, uh, we bought a lot of equipment actually for the health centres. We trained the um, healthcare providers, most of which were midwives who had maybe a two-year training course since they'd left school. And um, so we did what's called BMONC training, basic emergency obstetric and neonatal care training courses, sort of hands-on training with mannequins and so on, to teach them how to deal with obstetric emergencies when they were in their health centres, you know, and they had a lady coming with a severe bleed or with a placenta stuck. And so things that they could actually do in their health centres before they referred to, to the bigger hospitals. Um, that was quite a big part of it. Um, and we did eventually also actually build sort of in an MSF style, we built little operating theatres within um, the sort of, we found the, we were in three different districts. So we started off in one of them. I um, mean, the biggest health centre, we then kind of, rehabilitated one of the rooms in the health centre to make it into an operating theatre so that we could offer what's called CMONC, which is Comprehensive Emergency Obstetric Care, which means a cesarean section, basically, in a blood transfusion. Um, because the government really didn't have money to transform, you know, to, to produce, to, to or, or it was going to take years for them to um, install hospitals. And so the idea was that we could try and bypass some of the delay that women had with coming to the central provincial hospital by opening these little operating theatres which were closer to where people lived and meant they got access to health you know that bit quicker and that worked really well as well so we did lots of different different things there um that yeah. sounds that sounds amazing that sounds like you've got loads of loads of uh, projects going on there can you tell us a little bit about the challenges what were the kind of challenges you faced and what was the turnout like in the re-education programs or the educational programs you had um with rega regards to women's health um did you know what what were the major challenges you faced um with 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 all the projects yeah so um 
I mean, once we understood sort of the cultural beliefs better than um, and the work in the community really took off, then 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 that worked really well. And, and um, you know, the people in the community were very interested to come and chat. And the only thing that the that our project would fund would be like a lunch or some or drinks and something to, you know, to get people together to, to chat. Um, so that worked really well. I mean, the barriers, you know, Northern Mozambique has has a lot of um, sort of problems just related to, for example, running water. The health, most of the health centres didn't actually have running water. Some of them had wells, um, but not all of them had functioning wells close to the health uh, centres. So that that's an issue, obviously. Um, when you're doing births, you need you need water and you need to keep you know the place as clean as possible. So that was an issue. Electricity also was an issue. There wasn't really proper uh, grid system so um, we also looked into solar panels and trying to equip the health centers with you know different um, forms of getting electricity so solar panels being one of them uh, generators uh, we also did fund some generators at generators and the issue was with um, paying for the fuel to run the generator um, and then the, just the infrastructure as well. I mean, the, uh, more recently they they received uh, funding, external funding to rehabilitate some of the health centres. Uh, we were in three districts. It's called Shiuri and Kwabi and Namuno. Namuno we moved into just actually this year before I left. It was an expansion because we'd done quite well in Shiuri and Kwabi and um, Namuno in particular. The infrastructure system there was more remote access was more difficult during the rainy season you know these are mud dirt roads and so um sometimes during the rainy system uh, rainy season you actually couldn't get through with ambulances or so, so transport you know access to health just um through physical means never mind the decision making so i don't know if you've heard of the three delays model but we in women's health we talk about the three delays with accessing health so the first delay is actually the person making the decision to reach hospital so and the barriers there are related to that so that's actually believing that going to hospital is going to make you better so once the the decision is then made the second delay is how long it actually takes you to get to hospital so that's for example roads or transport whether it exists or doesn't exist and, and how you would do it you do it on foot you do it on bicycles um, we had something called a bicycle ambulance that we set up a system so that they could reach hospital using bicycle ambulances. And then the third delay is the delay in the hospital. So that's um, related to um, issues with the health centre itself. So, for example, is there, you know, who's actually there human resources wise? So is there a qualified skilled birth attendant or midwife that can assess the problem or do they have to call somebody else when they call somebody else how long does that person to take to come when the decision's made for example for a cesarean section then is there actually an operating theater there can it open straight away or is there delay in calling you know the anesthetist and so on and then and there's other structural delays like do, is there blood is there a laboratory that can actually process blood transfusions if the lady needs blood so that that's the third delay so i mean mozambique has examples of all three delays quite extreme first second and third and so the project was set up around trying to trying to um, address those delays um with sort of local solutions you know solutions that were sort of feasible mm -hmm. and sustainable
And um, everything that you've reminded me so far, everything that you've mentioned so far has reminded me of a research project that I'm currently working on, which uh, where we're looking at the barriers and facilitators of doctors accessing mental health care. And the reason that it reminds me of that is because you've mentioned so many barriers that are in place. That I don't even think that anyone who anyone who's in the UK, you know, like, of course, there are different barriers in place for people from different areas of the UK, but for the majority, like for the, for the most part, we're very lucky to have the healthcare system in place. And I think that, yeah, so the reason that I brought this up is because I thought it would be interesting for our listeners to have a, a quick search of the health belief model, which refers to the actions that people need to take in order to actually, um, the, all of the steps that people need to take in order to take action for any health problems that they're facing. So this includes things like their demographics, their psychological characteristics, their perceived susceptibility to developing condition, the perceived severity, the health motivation, perceived benefits and perceived barriers before they actually end up taking that action. So yeah, that was just a little bit of commentary, but it leads me on to my next question, um, which is that I understand from everything that you've said so far and also from the research uh, that's out there, that there's kind of this difference between um, people who are very much team traditional birth attendant and people who are very much team hospital delivery. And um, just for our listeners, uh, a traditional birth attendant, and by the way, please correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Makins, um, a traditional birth attendant refers to a usually a woman in the community who is experienced in delivering uh, babies for the other women in the community, but does not have any formal um, not does not have any formal midwifery or obstetrics and gynecology training. Um, so yeah, research by the WHO that I've read in the past suggests that the gold standard would be to train up traditional birth attendants and with everything that you've said so far, I wonder whether we've been looking at everything um, from an NHS-centric lens, where, at least in my head, I've always thought, okay, the gold standard is hospital, hospital, hospital. But in reality, not everyone has access to an NHS across the world. So in your opinion, what do you think is the best course of action in terms of, uh, is it best to train up traditional birth attendants? Is it best to um, direct women towards hospitals and try to reduce the barriers that you've mentioned? Or is it best to try and find a mixture of the two? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, skilled birth attendants were the term that the WHO came up with for people who were formally trained to um, look after women in labour and help them give birth. And so in some countries that might be an obstetric nurse and others it will be a midwife or could, or in some countries it's, it's the doctor. So that, that's the term that's used in traditional birth attendants. Um, there's a lot of research actually looking into training traditional birth attendants and the vast majority show that it it, it is it is difficult um to to train a traditional birth attendant up to the level of what you would call a skilled birth attendant so somebody who could deal with the sort of um emergencies that can go wrong um in labor so the, the problem with giving birth is that there was a paper written in the Lancet by Una Campbell where she talked about the golden 24 hours. So the thing about giving birth is that when things go wrong, they go wrong quite quickly and they can go wrong quite badly. And it, although they don't necessarily often go wrong, if they do go wrong um, in order to survive it, either mother or baby, then you need to have access to what, what I was mentioning before, which is basic emergency obstetric and neonatal care, BMONC services. And then at the next level up, CMONC services which would add in needing a cesarean section. It's obviously not everybody needs a cesarean section. Not everybody is going to have an emergency, um, but 
in order to survive. And, and, and the other thing is that it's not very predictable when those things are going to happen, when these things are going to go wrong. Um, and so the difficulty with traditional birth attendants only is that they tend to be living um, in very rural areas. Um, and as I said, um, often they are ladies in their sort of, you know, later years, so 50s or 60s, who have given birth themselves many times and then looked after women in labour um, as part of, you know, their their skill in, in the village and so on. But they're not, they're often, so for example, in, in Mozambique, the traditional birth attendants were on the whole illiterate, they didn't read or write. Um, and so it makes kind of training regarding specific things quite difficult. And so what the Mozambican government felt was that what was better was for the traditional birth attendants to continue with their role in the in the villages in terms of being aware of which ladies were pregnant, advising them about checking on them, you know, whilst they're pregnant. But the advice was that they would be telling them to go to the health centre for their regular antenatal clinic appointments. Um, and then when they go into labour, that the traditional birth attendant should be the one actually to take the lady to the nearest health centre so it wouldn't be that everybody would go to a hospital like you would go to a hospital in the UK or or even a mid midwifery led care unit um, but you would go to what's called a basic health centre and the basic health centre would then have a skilled birth attendant there and that's somebody who is able to deal with these some of these emergencies so the basic emergency basic emergency obstetric care that I mentioned um, and then at that stage, if then there are further complications that that person's unable to deal with it, then they would get referred to uh, a, what would what we would think of as a hospital, which would be somewhere with with an operating theatre that could offer a cesarean section and a blood transfusion if that person needed it, if that lady needed it. So, I mean, different contexts, you know, you can't have one rule for for the world. It depends very much on, on, on each context. Um, in Nepal, they have female community health volunteers, um, and they're not necessarily involved in birth, but they can be, but they play a very significant and important role um, in terms of looking after the lady antenatally and particularly postnatally with neonatal, uh, with the neonatal care afterwards. Um, and we worked very much with the, they're called FCHVs in Nepal, um, with regards to sort of spreading information about contraception. Um, and they work more i would say more directly with um with the sort of official government systems i'm not sure whether they're actually i don't know that whether they actually receive a salary or not um the fact they're called volunteers i think probably means they don't um but many countries have equivalents so in in kenya they have community health volunteers who aren't necessarily female it could be male community health volunteers who also play a similar role in terms of counseling about um that you know general health of the lady um antenatally and postnatally so there's various models and um, so I'm, i you know i don't think necessarily everybody needs to come to a hospital to give birth but i, I do think and a who would say this that everybody needs a skilled birth attendant at birth mm -hmm. that's how you reduce maternal morbidity and mortality definitely mm -hmm. and you've spoken a little bit about uh, similarities and differences between uh, other countries and their uh, the systems that they have in place for um, women in labour. Um, but my question is about the NHS in particular. What are some of these similarities and differences between global health systems and the NHS that you've seen? And also, is there anything that the NHS can learn from the systems that other countries have in place? Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
So similarities, I mean, one thing that the NHS has, which many countries don't have, have is what we call universal health coverage, which is, you know, a, um, a very high quality uh, level of care that is off offered free of charge to everyone and anyone that walks in through the door. Um, and that is something to be held, you know, very highly. There are not many countries in the world where you have a high quality service that doesn't cost you anything. Um, and I know people have many complaints about the NHS, you know, length of waiting for procedures, elective procedures and so on. Um, but compared to most places that I've worked in or, you know, or seen and include Brazil in that and that, um, you know, it, it is something to be to be protected, I think, and I, I hope that the NHS can cope with the, you know, strains and issues that 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 that, are, that come up all the time. But um, it really is quite phenomenal in that respect. In terms of sort of, uh, you know, maternity services, so it's quite a different situation here in the UK, and that you know you've got most women wanting to come to hospital to give birth. We have um, midwifery-led care units um, and also people wanting to give home births and we're in the very privileged situation in the UK where we have community midwives. So your skilled birth attendant actually goes to your house. So if you, as a woman, want to have a give birth at home, that generally is possible in the UK um, as long as, you know, it's considered that your pregnancy isn't particularly high risk and that there aren't any other sort of issues that mean that we would be worried about you not being in a hospital. But so and, and that is also you know quite something quite special that, that, that the uk has to offer um and then in terms of learning from systems i i mean we have a huge amount to learn from what happens in low income countries you know what midwives or skilled birth attendants are expected to do in low income countries is phenomenal compared to compared to what midwives do in this country you know they take on because of the lack of um or reduced number of medical staff or less doctors around. In, I've worked with some incredible midwives who do all kinds of things um, that you know wouldn't happen somewhere like here. So, so what is what we call task sharing, or some people call task shifting. So, adding on other tasks to roles that aren't necessarily wouldn't that, that wouldn't necessarily be the role of a nurse or a midwife. You know that in other countries doctors would do. Um, I think the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, low middle income countries did an incredibly good job of um, being flexible about their work and, and sort of thinking. I think the problem with the NHS is that we're all, you know, everybody's stuck in their normal routine and we follow guidelines and the guidelines are given centrally. And so suddenly with COVID-19, when we were in a situation, particularly at the start, where actually there wasn't any knowledge about the virus there weren't any guidelines about what we had to do i think actually people struggled <laughs> in in high income countries because that's that's what you know that's what we that's what we need because we're not used to being flexible or coming up with our own local solutions or whatever whereas you know in mozambique the guy in the markets made his masks out of um whatever he has available you know uh, what it would you call it palm trees and so on and uh, you know, if you because they because they're used to sort of you know making do or, or trying to work out another system or another way to do things, and so in a sense, I think um, I think yeah, the our systems had a lot to learn from that sort of decentralization. You know, people sort of sorting out you know PPE when there wasn't the right PPE or enough PPE and so on. Well, rather than sitting around waiting for it to come centrally, actually just sort out your own local solution. 
um, and the same with you know all the infection control prevention and control where people weren't exactly sure when they should be wearing a mask when they shouldn't be wearing a mask so actually just having to make those decisions ourselves sometimes without the right evidence and data backing it so yeah lots to learn from from LMICs and what are your long-term goals or what are your goals that you've, you've amassed so much experience from working in the UK as well as working abroad in in various across various continents even um and and you've done so much research on um, maternal health and global health um at large so what are your kind of what's what's next really are there projects that you've got in the pipeline that you'd like to work on or, or are there other um yeah other research projects and other things that you'd like to kind of uh want to manifest to kind of change the landscape or improve the landscape of global health um not just within the uk but across across the developing countries um and is there something that you'd like to you'd like to kind of inform the nhs of to kind of do to to improve and and make services better if you like especially when it comes to women's health because i feel like although we say that women's health um, isn't as prioritised perhaps in the developing countries. Um, would you say that's the case in the UK as well? And also other projects. So I think I've got like two questions here, two completely. Uh, I wouldn't say irrelevant, but um, not connected. But I would, yeah. Would you say that there there's um, like women's health? Of course, it's, it's. I guess it's more. It's probably more accessible, and it's. Uh, medicine is more accessible to us here of course but is there is there some sort of disparity between um the kind of coverage and the kind of attention given to women's health um here in the uk as well um so i haven't had so much involvement in the sort of public health aspects of how the you know nhs distributes its um its income in terms of um budgets and so on for different areas you know how much goes to maternal health or how much goes to mental health or, or whatever else I think generally speaking maternity services in the UK probably do have a relatively high priority I think also because sadly we probably cost the NHS quite a lot in the sense that when things go wrong um, you know the the consequences are very severe um, also, from an economic point of view, in terms of, you know, the litigation side of things. And so in that sense, that makes us quite a priority. Um, I think there are probably other areas within the NHS that don't get the same prioritisation because of that. I think during the pandemic, for example, you know, we couldn't, whilst, well, we did have, there was some shuffling around of, anything that we did that was elective particularly in gynecology um, was cancelled or um, or deferred um, and there was some redeployment of staff but generally speaking maternity services were protected from all of that because you know people don't stop having babies and um, and um, it, and it's a kind of you have to deal with it it's a bit like A&E you know you can't not have people walking in through the door with their obstetric emergency and so in that sense I think maternity services are quite prioritised I think where things are less prioritised are still very important things within women's health like for example contraception sexual health services and so on um, but I know I particularly feel feels to me like mental health services are particularly underfunded um, and um, it was a huge need and um, but, but I, yeah like I said I'm not I'm not an expert in how in sort of public health spending 
um, within the UK. In terms of what you'd asked me before, what I want to do, it's a really good question. I haven't really thought about what I want to do. I kind of I sort of look for opportunities and grab them if I think they're interesting and worthwhile. Um, but certainly, you know, I kind of went through medical school and also most of my registrar years thinking um, that I wasn't interested in research because I wasn't an academic and I was thought of research as being sitting in a lab, looking down a microscope or sort of very high, you know, level academic stuff. But actually, my work abroad taught me that, um, you know, implementation research was enormously important. So there was no point going wherever to Sierra Leone or to Mozambique and doing a load of stuff if I couldn't document that what I, I had done was beneficial or not, as the case may be, you know, so if the Tejas Alberto, so these conversations, you know, and with um, the community uh, people in, in, in the rural villages in Mozambique, if it actually, if I didn't show that it resulted in something positive, then there was no learning from it, and I, you know, and you couldn't then help you know, sort of exchange knowledge and so on between contexts if you didn't document it. So I suddenly realised quite late in my career that actually research was really, really important and that I should have paid more attention to it earlier on. And so now, you know, anything I do, I always make sure that we've got, you know, scientifically robust data before, during and after so that we can show, you know, with what, what's what I call implementation research. So you can demonstrate that what you've done, what you've implemented, whether you did make a change or not. And if you didn't make a change, then why did you make a change and what do you have to do differently to make a change? And then in that, I would include not only quality, not only quantitative research, but also qualitative research is really important. Um, and often a lot of the studies I've done have been mixed methodology. So you have a qualitative, you have a quantitative element and you also have a qualitative element to it um, particularly for example this work with community health volunteers female community health volunteers in Nepal we also did a lot of work there and, and, and this sort of complement of the two kinds of research was really valuable um, so yeah that's that's me <laughs> I feel like um, I merged two questions in one so thank you so much for answering both questions um, and you did it so you did it very swiftly as well so thanks um, yeah so just for our uh, penultimate question uh, we just wanted to ask, with all of this, I feel like um, I, I've been talking a little bit about things that are trendy for medical students these days. And one of the things is chasing that nine to five, trying to find some sort of um, job that lets you attain a work life balance. And, you know, from everything that you've said, it seems almost it, it seems like you've you've had more than 24 hours in your day, to be honest. And um, I, it's actually quite inspiring from the from the point of view of a medical student at the start of their journey. So my question to you is, with all of the work that you've done, how do you maintain a work-life balance and what advice could you give to us? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it is difficult. I do work a lot, but, um, you know, but I, I have a family, I have three kids and, and then we spend time together. So it's just, I think you have to just be aware of when it's encroaching too much on your personal life or your family life. And also kind of being flexible. I find like, you know, flexible working hours really, really help me out. Um, just, um, you know, not having to, so, you know, the nine to five thing is, is when kids are at school is fine because you know you're away when they're at school but actually before that you know nine to five is not that helpful um and um and just sort of I'm a big sort of squeezing in and multitasking kind of person <laughs> <laughs> to have lots of things on the go in the time where it's okay to work 
mm-hmm. but I very much try and keep my um you know my private time with my family separate to work and um and they're the first to tell me when I'm when it's encroaching on their their little bit and so yeah then I cut it out or back <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah and, and very supportive husband makes all the difference yeah very, very <laughs> okay sounds good and um finally just for our final question at least the final question for me i'm not sure if erica has anything to add afterwards but the final question from me is what what um piece of advice i, I know i keep on asking for advice again and again but just as kind of like a closing statement from you you can mention anything that you want what advice would you give to medical students or um yeah just just anything else that you have to say feel free to let us know but yeah the question is kind of what advice would you give for medical students or doctors or, or really anyone that wants to get to where you are today? Um, I think you, you know, you make sure that you choose something that interests you and that makes you happy and that makes you feel fulfilled. And that's the most important thing because, you know, our job is the bigger proportion of our life. And so, you know, I, you need to make sure that whatever choices you make in terms of specialty and so on, that, that it that it sits right with you and I think there you know medicine has so many different avenues that you can follow even more so now um that um there's plenty of opportunity to find the right career for the right you know for, for the right person for the right individual and I think we're you know everybody's born with their little talent for that particular particular thing and you just got to make sure that you match your talent with with the job that you go for um and um and to not give up and um if you you know get a no as an answer or uh it's not quite going to work or whatever else that you work it out so it does work and and you keep at it you know if you think i've always had the some i don't know somewhere you just have this feeling that this is right and this is what you need to do um and then sometimes you know doors close or it doesn't quite work out but just you just keep you have to be persistent and you'll get there in the end (laughs) that would be my little my little gem of my thought amazing um and that is where we're going to draw uh draw it to a close it's been incredible thank you for that little gem at the end um it's been incredible to have you on board today um i've learned a lot from you and i'm sure amaya and the rest of our um and the audience have as well um thank you so much for your time and um yeah no thank you really really kind of you to invite me and um yeah i feel honored to um to have the space to chat but no nice to nice to chat about about things and thought for a long time <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much we feel honored to have had you on all thank the you. best bye bye, bye.